Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Jamie Seskin about future politics, living together in a world transformed by tech. We talk about the impact of technology on our lives, from social justice to the ethical responsibilities of tech companies, to the role of laws and regulatory affairs given our digital lives. Then on Tech Nation Health, breakthrough science, which may help in the treatment of epilepsy. With 65 million people affected worldwide and many not responsive to the current medicines, Bloom Science is focusing on a new approach. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Mariposa started as a mining town back in the famous California Gold Rush. It's situated on one of the roads which rise up into the great Yosemite Valley. So you might just drive through Mariposa if you're going in that direction. Today it's a hardy town of around 2,000 people which primarily caters to tourists and happy to give you a sense of what remains from the old days. The big tourist season is summer, so the residents know to make money while they can. And they also know Mother Nature can always mix things up. Heavy rains can flood out the highway, or California wildfires might shut them down for a time and even force evacuations. But the townspeople always return and simply carry on. What they didn't see was that technology would throw them a curve. This past July and August, the Ferguson fire raged through the Sierra, and for the first time in a long time, it actually shut down Yosemite National Park. If you can imagine what it means to fight a fire in the high Sierra, you can appreciate that every available road is taken up with firefighters and equipment and supplies, and sometimes the fires themselves close down whole sections of roads until the fire blows through or changes course. If you're trying to navigate through this maze during the fires, Google Maps is helpful in telling you which roads are open from where to where and which roads are closed. Just like always, it gives you what routes are possible and how long it might take. And when there's a fire, a dynamic, fast-moving, fast-paced fire, such information is a godsend. But when the fire wanes and the fire crews leave, the people of Mariposa simply get ready for the tourists to return. But this time, they weren't. The clues started coming from travelers whose destination was Mariposa itself. They would call up hotels and cancel reservations, saying that Google Maps tells them the roads are closed. They simply can't get there. San Francisco Chronicle journalist Curtis Alexander spoke with these innkeepers who swore to these potential guests that the roads were indeed open. But they wouldn't take a chance. It was a question of who was more believable. How could Google Maps be wrong? Wasn't it more likely the Mariposa locals weren't privy to the better information that Google had. 
Google Maps, like so much of social media, doesn't have a phone line to call or an email address to write to in order to point out misinformation. But they do have an online submission form. When repeated entries weren't answered, all sorts of people got into the fray, including the National Park Service and Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation. Even the mighty Chronicle only got an email back stating that Google was looking into the matter. What I suspect is that Google doesn't expect its data to be wrong, and if wrong, it's not all that critical. I mean, if my street gets blocked off, there are plenty of other options within several hundred feet. But in Mariposa or in the mountains, block a road and you might need to drive an hour or more just to get from point A to point B. We'll likely never know what happened here, but I'm betting that the town of Mariposa would like to be assured it will never happen again. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Jamie Seskin, a past fellow of Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, about the impact of technology on our lives, on social justice, and on the ethical responsibilities of tech companies. Then on Tech Nation Health, some breakthrough science in the treatment of epilepsy and how that may well lead to better treatments for the over 3 million Americans affected. Reading Jamie Suskin's book, Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech, I was reminded of a long-standing Tech Nation rule. Technology is the silent partner of history. I commented to him, it's certainly true today. Absolutely. I mean, the argument in my book is that the digital is political and that in the future, what we consider to be technological advances are going to be inseparable from political changes as well. And that's a new development in human history. I mean, technology has always been closely related to political change. But for the reasons I argue in my book, I think it's going to supercharge them this time. I keep thinking of IBM, who recently had a report on something, but in it they said that 90% of all the information ever generated has been generated in the last two years. <laughs> Absolutely. It's said that every couple of hours now we generate as much data as we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. And what that means is that there's increasingly a recording out there in semi-permanent or permanent form of our lives, of things which in previous generations would have been immediately forgotten to time, who we associate with, where we go, what we buy, what we care about and what we dislike. And it leaves a, a record of our lives and our internal lives as well and aspects of our lives that we might ourselves not even know about because they're only visible 
so the machines that analyze the patterns, but it leaves a map that's so much more visible, so much more detailed than anything humans have ever had before. I can just imagine our great-great-grandchildren growing up and finding out things about us saying, they were so clueless. <laughs> they had no, we know things about them they didn't know about themselves. Absolutely. Now, I want to be clear, we're talking about politics, and for people not interested in politics, politics is really the basis of how society views itself, a reflection of sort of the pastiche of mores and what's important to culture and all of that. So when you talk about politics, you're talking about a much larger entity, if you will. Absolutely. I think there, in fact, is a risk if we just conceive of politics in the old narrow terms of parliaments and congresses and legislatures and lawmakers and of Republican and Democrat and the upcoming midterms or whatever it is, we're liable to miss new and strange forms of power that are emerging on the horizon in a sense our words themselves define them out of existence. So if you step back and look at what I consider to be politics, which is essentially how humans order and bind their collective life, then technology is going to transform that in our public spaces as well as in our private ones. And so at our risk, we only focus on the day's capital P political news without looking at the forces that are changing um, power, the forces that are changing freedom, the forces that are changing democracy, and the forces that are changing justice. And to my mind, the most powerful in respect of all of those in our time is technology. Well, let's talk about power. You know, in the past, power might have been controlled by the armies and navies you had or who had the most armed men or the the best uh, weapons or could protect a certain amount of land. Uh, but you argue that power will go to those that control information. Let's explore that. Absolutely. My argument is that those who control the most powerful technologies will increasingly control the rest of us. And if you conceive of power as the ability to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise have done or not to do things they would otherwise have done, and in particular things of significance, then you can see that actually technologies can be used to exert power over us in a number of ways. One is by setting rules which the rest of us have to obey. And this was originally the great insight of Larry Lessig, but the idea that when you get into a self-driving car and ask it to drive over at the speed limit and it refuses, or to park on a in an illegal spot and it refuses to do that as well, you've in a sense become a rule taker of the people who write that code, who write those rules. But technology also exerts power in other ways too. It controls our perception of the world in the sense that we rely on technologies to present us with the reality of what's out there beyond our immediate sensory perception and which slice of reality we're presented with by our news algorithms, by our search algorithms, by our augmented reality systems in due course. Which slice of reality matters because it determines what we know about, what we care about and what we think about the world beyond our immediate perception. And if something's not on the agenda at all, it's hard for us to care about it or feel strongly about it or want to change it. And the final way that technologies exert power is through scrutiny, which is in particular relating to the gathering of data. The more you know about someone, the easier it is to influence them. And it's said that Cambridge Analytica, uh, which was employed by Donald Trump at the last presidential election, had uh, 5,000 data points for at least 200 million of American voters. Now, that made it possible to target political adverts 
in a much more direct and persuasive way than had ever been done in the past. And of course, gathering data and trying to influence people, even manipulate them, is at the heart of a lot of online advertising models for private sector things as well. And so the more data that's gathered about us, the more susceptible we are to influence and persuasion of that kind. But the truth is we also discipline ourselves when we know that we're being watched. We change our behavior when we believe that uh, someone might see or discover what we've done. So in a very simple example, I think in the future, if you wanted to drive somewhere without your spouse finding out, it'd be very hard to do so, and you're, you're less likely to do it in circumstances where your car contains a log of every journey you've ever done, because it's in a sense a digital uh, system that um, perhaps is self-driving, perhaps not, but either way records your journey as data. And so you're likely in that circumstance to discipline yourself to not take the journey. And so that's another way in which digital systems can get us to change our behavior in a very subtle way by making us do it ourselves. And I think that's part of it, that sense that you have that you don't know who's watching what when. You know, we're really, really moving into that space where it's just so convenient to put your credit card in and get anything from a small beverage up to, you know, a car. (laughs) It's like, here it is. All of that information is there about you. And we really haven't quite gotten the implication of what that means. I mean, what you do need to know, of course, though, is that A, your appliances and your software gather information about you. Secondly, that information often does not rest with the initial gatherer, but rather is sold on to third parties whose job it is to get together all the disparate bits of data about you that are out there in the universe and repackage them into one useful summary of who you are from a particular perspective. And then that data itself is likely to be sold on for another purpose, whether it's to get you um, to buy things or to check whether you fit the profile of someone who is a criminal or a terrorist, or to see whether you should get a mortgage or insurance, or to see whether you should get a job. Increasingly, employers use data about you that's not gathered from your application to that employer, but scraped from Facebook and bought from third-party suppliers. And I think the more we become aware of the fact that this data is being gathered about us, the more we're likely to see social consequences as a result. It would seem to me naive to suppose that that's not going to affect our behavior in some way. It may be that we have to become more forgiving, just like, you know, I'm from a generation where a lot of youthful misdemeanors, and I don't mean serious things, but just the silly stuff that you do when you're a teenager has been caught in photographs and stored on social media and you don't want your employers to see that. If you're running for public office, you don't want the voters to no see it. No red cups. No red cups. Exactly. <laughs> but in a sense, it's kind of inevitable that more and more of that history, which, as I say, our ancestors would have taken for granted, would have been immediately forgotten, is never going to be forgotten. And that, I think, is going to have quite a profound effect on the way that we live. One of the things that's clear in today's heavily mediated age where we're getting multiple channels, multiple websites, multiple 
uh, feeds of data in many varieties. Um, one of the concerns is about just the nature of being human. When you consume information, you as a human can't tell if it's spin, if it's true, if it's false, if it's fake, which may mean it's true. Mm. <laughs> you, know, you can't observe anything and understand that it's incomplete. You can't tell yourself, don't remember that, it's false. Your memory doesn't work that way. And it seems that humans in general are very bad consumers of information. This this is sort of a weakness in the entire system in the presence of all this technology. I think it's a really profound and important point. The truth is that we lack the critical distance from the technologies which we need to have critical distance from if we're to understand how they properly influence us. It's a sort of catch-22 situation. And you rightly indicate that, you know, one of the ways in which we can be bamboozled by technologies is that we can be presented with information which is false, just simply not true. So the top 20 news stories, the last general election that were fake news on Facebook, just simply untrue, were read and shared as much as the top 20 from the major news outlets combined. And 75% of people who read them thought they were true. Increasingly, it's possible using AI systems to replicate the voices of real people to get them to say things that they never said, even to make videos of politicians to get them to say stuff that they never said. And so it's going to become increasingly difficult for us to tell what is real and what isn't. The great irony here, though, is that when the internet was invented, it was said that it would empower citizens and make political lying impossible. Because as soon as someone told a fib, you'd be able to go on the internet and find out whether what they said was true or not and fact check it. But of course, now you find corroborating fibs. Exactly. Well, quite. And the technology is more used now for the spread of, well, I think more used is probably an exaggeration, but it is often used for the spread of falsehoods, just as it is for the spread of truths. And that's something we have to wrestle with. It's a technical problem in the sense that we should try to design systems on which it is more difficult to disseminate fake news. But it's also a philosophical problem in the sense that there are parts of the political community in this country and in mine and elsewhere that simply don't care about truth, and that's always been the case. But there are also parts of the community that have been launching a sort of war on truth, the idea that actually there is no such thing as objective truth and that your truth is as valid as my truth and so forth. And that's a quite well-respected position within academic life. And I think if you marry that philosophy with technologies which can disseminate falsehoods with the blink of an eye, you're going to have a system where truth is the victim. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jamie Suskind, a past fellow of Harvard University's Beckman Center for Internet and Society and a practicing barrister. He's the author of Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. Now, I must say that Americans in general are a little confused about who and what a barrister is. They know Mm. it's British. Maybe he wears a wig. We don't know. You might have gone to law school. You might not have. Now, remind us. What have you... So a barrister barrister is a lawyer, uh, but in particular, we are those who represent people in court. So there's a separation in the profession, a bit like the separation between a GP and a surgeon, where... A lot of the paperwork is done by solicitors and a lot of the advocacy is done by barristers. So I'm, a, I'm an advocate. I have been to law school and I do wear a wig from time to time in certain of the courts of England and Wales. <laughs> now, do you have your own wig or is there, are there wigs? You know, you just go in and pick a wig like no, you, you pick you, a construction hat. You, you have to have your own wig. And uh, 
Well, I mean, you can borrow one off a colleague, but it's nice to have your own wig, and it's surprisingly expensive because it's made out of horse hair, and it's a bit of a sort of ceremonial purchase at the time you qualify as a lawyer. Hope You might hope that your parents get it for you because you've just graduated from law school and are a little bit strapped for cash. But these things cost hundreds of pounds, but they're supposed to last you a whole career. That's it. So you buy one a career if you're lucky. You Absolutely. don't want to wear out your wig. Yeah. That's good. Now, uh, did you focus in particular areas in your advocacy? Well, I'm by training, I guess what you'd call here a constitutional lawyer. So I look at the relationship between the state and the individual. And a lot of the cases that I do in the past have been judicial review cases. But actually, my main area of practice now is discrimination law, which largely takes place within the employment context. So I act in cases where someone has said that they are being treated less favorably or paid less on the grounds of their race or their sex or their sexuality or their gender. And... uh, I find that very interesting, and it certainly helped me when I began to look at issues of algorithmic discrimination for the book. You know, it's very interesting that when you're advocating for such aspects as you've been describing, you really start to understand the necessity for society to protect all its members. It doesn't mean everybody gets equal everything. It does mean that everyone has to have some measure of deference to who they are and what they are, and that it can be so easily trampled upon, either by individuals or by technology. We've just been talking about how algorithms and data, but especially algorithms, might rule you in and rule you out given particular prejudices against someone for things that are protected by a constitution, say. In the case of data, usually you can track down the data. You know, the data is there. But an algorithm, an algorithm that has been written into a program that's been coded into ones and zeros, and uh, you had good luck on reverse engineering it (laughs) to find out what it does. I'm especially worried as sort of hidden algorithms. How do we determine that an algorithm has interfered with social justice? So just to unpick that, there is... First of all, as you say, a difficulty a lot of the time that we struggle to see algorithms as they're working on the data with which they're fed. I don't think it's an insuperable problem because in the sense when I work as a discrimination lawyer, I don't know what's going on inside the head of the discriminator. It's impossible to see into the heart of a human being, but you can still call something discrimination if the outcome is one which is inconsistent with principles of justice or principles of discrimination, which is why one of the things that I say in the book is if you want to see whether an algorithm is just or not, the first thing you have to do is say what your principle of justice is. Here's what you think an an ideal outcome or a fair outcome would look like or a set of fair outcomes. Then you look at the outcomes that are actually generated by an algorithm and one way or another, you should be able to tell whether the algorithm is in harmony with that principle of justice or whether it militates against it. At the same time, we can also try to improve the transparency of algorithms, both by requiring on occasion that they are made visible when they are currently kept as commercial secrets, and secondly, by placing a higher onus on tech firms to actually explain what they're doing and to show us the data that they're using or to show a trusted third party. In a sense, we're nowhere with trying to Uh, regulate that stuff or get closer to a system of transparency because right now a lot of it is behind closed doors. So I do think there is more we can do. I also think you don't always need to be able to see as it were into the soul of an algorithm to see whether something's going wrong because you can look at the outcomes. 
when it's helpful to look, be able to see the soul is when you're trying to tinker with the algorithm or to try and repurpose or reorganize the data in a way that doesn't lead to prejudicial outcomes. But if I may say so, I think that's a way down the line of where we currently are. I mean, what I found in my research for the book is that, first of all, there are obviously lots of discriminatory algorithms out there, just flatly discriminatory ones, like the one at Amazon last week, which we can talk about, which emerged, where it was discriminating against female applicants for jobs at, at Amazon, because the machine learning system had determined that the best indicator of success at Amazon was in fact being a man. And so if your resume said the words women's volleyball team rather than just volleyball team, your resume would go to the bottom of the pile. And that's because that had been trained on data from the past, which reflected a predominantly male culture at Amazon. So that's, a, that's an example of an algorithm which was just, in a sense, obviously discriminatory. But then you have a problem which I commonly come across in the tech community, which is the idea that the way to fix discrimination is through neutral algorithms. But neutrality is a principle of justice which isn't always right or fair. So when you go to a courtroom, you expect the judge to be neutral in that sense, and that is an instance where it is fair. But as Desmond Tutu once said, if there is an elephant standing on the tail of a mouse, the mouse isn't going to thank you for your neutrality. And if you type into Google the words, why do Jews, it might autocorrect it to the words, have big noses, or like money so much. And these are obviously unpleasant and unreasonable uh, stereotypes. But what Google would say is that uh, for the same reason that its algorithms often throw up criminal background checks, if you type in the name of someone who sounds African-American, they will say that what its system does is neutrally and faithfully reflects the way that people have used that system in the past. So it's a neutral algorithm, Google would say. My answer to that is the neutrality is obviously not good enough there. What you really want is a system which leaves the world better once it has been used than it found it, rather than one which replicates an injustice that already exists in the real world or even amplifies it, as these systems often do. So I often say to you know software engineers, don't fall for the neutrality fallacy. The way that you have to think about algorithms is, is to step back and say, what's the actual principle at play here and you might say that one of the principles that ought to be at play with a search engine is treat everybody as people of equal moral worth as far as possible and if that's your principle you're not going to be satisfied with a neutral algorithm which generates results which are on their face racist and unpleasant it reminds me so much of my mother and it's no bad companions you'll start acting like the bad companions you'll start thinking like the bad companions you'll start speaking like the bad companions so if you have bad companions doing searches on Google and it's completely well we'll just we'll follow what people are normally saying you will get bad companion behavior back <laughs> absolutely and and what's interesting is that machine learning systems often show us how bad companions we actually are you know there's one not so long ago that was developed to solve simple word problems so it would be things like um, man is to son as woman is to daughter that sort of thing but the way that the system was trained was on actual speech from human beings so it was that's the data that was input into it and what it had was very revealing. So it was, if you fed it man is to doctor as woman is to, it would reply nurse. And if you fed it man is to architect as woman is to, it would reply interior designer. It's not a an inherently sexist system, but what it is is a system which reflects the way that we use language, which as it turns out, 
is structurally and systematically unfair towards women. And again, I think if you're trying to produce a system that makes the world better, you try and engineer away those problems rather than holding your hands up and saying nothing we can do about it. Jamie Suskin is the author of Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, some breakthrough science in the treatment of epilepsy. Let's just say you can trust your gut. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Jamie Seskin. His book is Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. I think what's been so clear in the last two years has been the impact of the social media tools. Um, Clearly, uh, the whole idea that globally accessible social media can be used to, to have one country interfere in another election. Russia uh, attempting to interfere in the U.S. elections. And if you just want to see the rhyme and reason of it, you can just go read uh, the February 2018 federal indictment of the 30 Russian individuals and three Russian organizations. And th- all very simple uses of technology all very simple messaging and yet targeted. It's um, it's really amazing to me in this sort of social media version 1.0 that we rise above our national societies into global societies, and this is all happening with tools that are available to all of us. I mean, that example you give is a depressing example of how our political system is not dealing properly with the challenges thrown up by technology. I mean, in a sense, the problem of Russian interference or foreign interference in democratic elections through social media engagement 
is not the greatest technical challenge that our tech firms and our governments are ever going to face. And if we are all united along the lines of saying that we need to develop a system of laws and a system of technical structures which make that much more difficult or impossible, I think we could make some progress. The difficulty is, as far as I can see, and I think it's the same in the United Kingdom, where it was said that there was external interference leading up to the Brexit referendum, these issues are seen through the prism of party politics. And one side perceives this issue as being a challenge to its legitimacy in government, which if it admits is a problem, is effectively admitting that it maybe shouldn't have won an election. And what that means is that the political will, the unity, is not there to deal with it, and therefore neither is the commercial or technical incentive really to deal with it. I mean, Facebook is trying, other firms say they're trying, but they'd be trying a lot harder, I think, if the political class was presenting a more united front. So one of the big arguments I make in my book is that, you know, in many ways, oh, we are ill-prepared for the world we are creating. Partisanship and um, party loyalty faction over anything else is going to be the death of useful policies when it comes to technology. I mean, we'll be nowhere in, if in five or ten years' time this is still, there's still the, the determining factor of whether we have good regulation or good laws or even good norms is whether the party in power happens to care about it. There's also the point that the technology builders have to step up to a higher ethical level. I mean, the idea of saying, we we just build the technology and it's neutral. It's never neutral. It is never neutral. If you're spewing pollution into the air, it's not neutral. If you are generating sexist uh, answers to search questions or prompts, it's not neutral. Um, if one country can come in and, and feed misinformation and organize people external to that country uh, and interfere in those elections, um, you may decide that that's not neutral. It's very, very interesting. I couldn't agree more. And there are two unhelpful, as it were, ideologies that result in, I think, too often tech firms holding up their hands. One is the ideology of engineering and software engineering itself, which you just discussed, which is that I think for too long it's been treated as a kind of neutral instrument. Or, you know, technology is like a knife. It can either be used to do good things or it can be used to do bad things. To my mind, when we train our software engineers, the module on the ethics of software engineering should not be a voluntary course that you do in the third year of your degree. It should be suffused in the degree, like it is with doctors, like it is with lawyers. You shouldn't be unleashing these people on the world without um, making sure that every one of them is as well-versed in the humanities and the moral side of their work as they are in the technical the second ideology is the ideology of capitalism. And in a sense, you can't blame tech firms for this. They are there to make money. They are corporate entities working in a market system, often fighting for survival. And therefore, a lot of their decisions are guided by what is going to make them the most money, which often means getting the most clicks or getting the most attention or whatever it is, which sometimes isn't going to be the same as what's healthy for democracy or what's healthy for freedom, or what's healthy for justice. 
which is why I conceive of these problems as political problems. That is to say, an oil company is going to pollute unless you make a law stopping it because the oil company is there to deliver value for its shareholders. And I wish companies were more ethical, and some are, but you can't build a system in relying on the goodwill of, of companies just to do things which are always the right thing to do because they're there to pursue profit as well. So you have to create other incentives, legal, regulatory, and social norms, which mean that tech firms think twice before unleashing products which might have grave negative social consequences. And I think we're just moving into the world where that's beginning to be something that occurs more and more of the time to tech firms. And I think it, you know it's a little bit like a couple of decades ago with climate change. Um, I think that people are much more cognizant now of the potential ramifications of what they do, but we're still nowhere. And of course, I teach at a Jesuit university, so everything has Jesuit as ethics, even ethics as ethics. We have a lot of ethics everywhere. Um, and what we're clear about in technology is that uh, we've sort of this cascade of innovation, you know, in the sense that uh, you create a new technology, or you have a new use for an existing technology, that might be a few people kind of get that picture. And then a whole lot of people use it. And, you know, if it gets that big, and then it's like women, either everybody should have it, so we'd make a law about that, or nobody should do this, <laughs> mm. have a law about that. So the regulatory and the laws are at the at the boundaries, in a sense. And what we want to do to me as a society, as an engineer, if you will, is is to is to build the the sensibility of ethics in. There is not an ethical solution to everything that you do, but there is an ethical sensibility. Absolutely. And that changes it from the core. So when you recognize that the laws and the regulations are not the leaders, it's, those are at the boundaries of where things should be. Mm-hmm. And um, I think so that, that that would take a whole societal change, if you will, and Absolutely. a whole, whole different look. You know, you mentioned earlier four basic political concepts, and I want to just define them for people. Um, power, how the strong dominate the weak, liberty, what is allowed and what is prohibited, democracy, how the people can rule, and social justice, what duties do we owe each other? And I kept looking at those, and I and I just took two. I went from the power to democracy. If the strong can dominate the weak, how can the people ever rule? That's always been a question at the heart of... Um interestingly, socialist theory. A lot of socialists have said in the last couple of hundred years, it's all very well having a democratic system where everyone has on paper equal rights, equal protection under the law. But if the economic system, they argue, is so skewed in favour of one group or one small minority, then the democratic rights don't count for much in the lived experience of most people. And what really matters, the socialist would argue, is the underlying economic um, conditions. When it comes to technology, I think we can get too caught up on the fact that tech firms are getting rich and their owners are getting rich and the rest of us aren't necessarily getting as rich. Because I do think that technology enriches our lives in a number of ways, which in a sense we're probably quite spoilt about and take for granted. You know, I use Twitter every day and it's, it's, it's absolutely great and I've never paid a penny for it. And, and I won't. Exactly. That's, that's the human attitude. Um, but <laughs> but you know, I want no consequences. <laughs> there, there is no doubt, there is no doubt that the 
claim to democratic legitimacy of a society is significantly undermined if private entities, which are not elected, which are not answerable in any sense to the people and whose movements are opaque, are able to exert power over us in a consistent and substantial way. I don't think we're in that world yet, but I think if you project which way technology is moving, then I do believe that those who own and control the most powerful technologies will increasingly control the rest of us. And if that's the case, uh, one of two things can happen. Either you have a supercharged state like you do in China, where the power of tech is kind of co-opted principally by the use of the, of the government there, which isn't democratic, but, you know, in this thought experiment could be, or, it's, or, or the power of technology accrues principally to tech firms, which require a kind of power that no corporate entity in the past could ever have dreamed of. And absolutely, I think it affects the claims to the democratic legitimacy of a country if really the key decisions about your life are taken by someone who is not answerable to you in any sense at all. Well, the Boy Scout motto is be prepared. And it seems to me that as a nation and as a as many nations together, a whole world, we have to be prepared to redesign our societies. There's, if I saw that message, whether you knew you had it in your book, I saw it throughout the book. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's the, it's the reason I do what I do is that I believe that my generation, I'm a millennial, I think my generation shoulders an extraordinary burden of a revolution that has been started partly by us and partly by those ahead of us and which we're going to have to complete now, the big ideological question of the 20th century was what should be done by the market and what should be done by the state? And that was the great political question that divided East from West and within countries it divided left from right. The great question for our century is to what extent should our lives be governed by digital systems and on what terms? And I don't believe that the intellectual, moral or philosophical groundwork is there for us to coherently argue one side or the other on that and that's why I wrote the book because I wanted to make a contribution to that end and I think the point you made a, lot, a minute ago is an important one which is that quite often when we say to technologists your products need to have some kind of ethics and you need to apply ethics when you design these systems that are reshaping the world they'll often say well ethics is contestable you know no one can agree on what's right or wrong but that's the essence of politics I'd rather live in a society where at least a tech firm could tell us what its ethical principle is, allow us to test whether its systems properly embody that principle through transparency, and also engage in debate about whether it's the right principle and whether it might change over time. But that's a different universe from the one we currently live in, where really the, all we know about how the most powerful tech firms operate and their algorithms work is when they voluntarily choose to tell us. And I, I, I have a call to arms, I think, as as citizens... We need to treat tech with the same civic scepticism that we treat figures of power generally. And we can't just look at this new developments as consumers thinking, oh, this is cool. How much will it cost? When can I get my hands on it? We need to look at them as citizens and recognize that the digital is political and that unless we get a grip on this stuff, it could run away from us. 
and we have to constantly do that. Another technician rule, those who create a technology can never predict how it will be used. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there we have today. There is so much we have not talked about. Uh, wiki democracy, AI democracy, many chapters here that uh, are fascinating. I do hope you'll come back and join us again. I hope you'll have me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, Janie. Thank you so much. My guest today is Jamie Suskin. The book is Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. It's published by Oxford University Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, some breakthrough science in the treatment of epilepsy, a condition which affects 65 million people worldwide. Tony Cullison is a co founder and CEO of Bloom Science. So epilepsy is caused by a number of different uh, underlying conditions, but the common kind of factor where everyone typically thinks about epilepsy is around seizures. So seizures is kind of the tip of the iceberg, for lack of better words, right? That's what people see. Um, Hard to avoid. Hard to avoid. That's it. Yeah. But there's more to it. There's absolutely more to it. So, you know, people can... um, experience epilepsy or seizures specifically who suffer from traumatic brain injury, from stroke, from infection, from genetic defect. Um, And again, it's part of the reason why we have so many drugs today that are currently being used to manage the condition. It's very complex, um, and there's still a lot for us to learn. Now, what is the standard of care when you present with epilepsy? Is it different if you're a young person, an old person, or how you got there? Sure. I mean, it definitely, there, you know, there's a number of lines of treatment where are very specific to a particular seizure type, whether it's focal or, or kind of impacts your, you know, your entire brain. Um, And I think, Unfortunately, what typically happens, though, is there's probably four or five drugs that are used as almost the workhorse to try to manage epilepsy, the seizure specifically. And, you know, there's a group of patients, around 50% of 3.5 million, who do respond to drug treatment. Um, and, And typically, those patients will be successful with one or two drugs. So they'll be on two drugs, you know, at the same time. But there's a large portion of patients who actually never respond to any drug treatment. And that's really our focus today for Bloom Science, that is. Now, you took an interesting approach because apparently the, what do you call it, the ketogenic, K-E-T-O, ketogenic diet helps epileptics. Right. So you're right. So there's the ketogenic diet has been around for roughly 100 years. Um, And what's interesting about it is the original kind of form of the treatment was starvation. So these patients were essentially starved in the late 1800s, and what they found out that they actually stopped seizures. Their seizures stopped. And so over a couple decades, so roughly around the 1920s, what they found is that they could replicate that seizure protection even if they added fat to the diet. 
And so that kind of, in essence, was, you know, the formal, um, you know, that's when the ketogenic diet was essentially formalized. So it's been used for, you know, we have roughly about 100 years of clinical experience, and it's incredibly effective, but can be a challenge, can certainly be challenging to comply with, and has, in some ways, in certain cases, has fallen a little bit out of favor because we have a bunch of small molecules that have been used to manage the disease. And those drugs... Those, that means pills. <laughs> those pills. And they work really well. Um, but what we see today, though, is there's a set of patients who don't respond to drug treatment and respond incredibly well to um, the ketogenic diet. So now let me ask you this. Today, American supermarkets, <laughs> fast foods, pizza, all of this... How do you pull off a ketogenic diet? What does that mean today? So it's, that's a great question. The ketogenic diet really is this very strict diet where roughly 90% of the calories are coming from fat and 10% coming from carbohydrates and proteins. No leafy vegetables. Not many leafy vegetables. So it's a very challenging diet to comply with. It's being done, and there are some new products that kind of make the whole process a little bit more palatable for patients. But... Um, you know, typically what ends up happening is once a patient is recommended to go on the ketogenic diet, it's likely after they've been on a, def a number of different drugs, they haven't responded adequately, they really go through this very substantial training process because it's not just the patient, it's the caregiver and the family that's also impacted by, you know, adopting the ketogenic diet. So I don't think people are going to be able to walk into... A, a supermarket or a fast food restaurant and easily meet the requirements of the diet. It can be done, but really what we're trying to do isn't that's where we see our role. Now, what would a typical day be like on a ketogenic diet? Just taking a step back. So there are all kinds of products that actually almost serve as flour replacement or a cereal replacement that meets the ketogenic diet. So they're literally cereals and flours and some things that kind of look like bread or might taste like bread a little bit. That's how people are surviving with, in combination with things like MCT oil and, and, um, and fats that are coming from butter. I mean, it's, a, it's butter, a really, eggs, yeah, it's stuff. a very, you know, it's a challenging diet to comply with. So I wish I could provide more color on what does it actually look like? Because people often ask and they go, it's a good question because it's such a departure from what we normally Maybe think Maybe we about. should go out to lunch. Oh, we should. <laughs> so we should. Then we could go out to a different dinner, yep. it sounds like. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's a, this is a challenge, and you were mentioning the caregiver. Yeah. Um, we have teenagers yeah. with this. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a big challenge. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has a huge impact on, on people's life, right? And... And, and there's actually quite a bit of effort and transitioning kids who are typically starting the diet into young adulthood and into adulthood. So it's, um, you know, teenagers, you know, want to fit in. So that's where you started, though, the ketogenic diet. Yeah. What yeah. do you guys do? So what we're doing is really, so the, just taking a step back, um, some wonderful work was done at UCLA. And through some really interesting experiments, we identified some specific bacteria that are part of our gut right now. And they appear to provide the seizure protection that is normally associated with the ketogenic diet. 
So the real big kind of interesting finding is, you know, for, for 100 years, literally people saw that the ketogenic diet would reduce seizures in patients suffering from epilepsy. We never really understood what was driving Why? that, right? <laughs> and so the work at UCLA really shows that, at least based on this work, that these bacteria are really directly involved in the seizure protection. So these two bacteria are working together like a little metabolic engine, and they ultimately are changing the chemistry in the brain. They're staying, the bacteria stay in the gut, but their impact is observed in the brain. So it's really exciting because it's beginning to connect, you know, some areas that we don't understand, like how does the microbiome affect how we our brain functions um, with areas that we do know in the brain. And so, you know, that's the essence of the work. She's Elaine, who's the scientist at UCLA, um, has essentially kind of made the connection, right? These bacteria are acting almost as the brake and accelerator in the brain. I understand recently that she published her findings in Cell, very prestigious journal. Right. Now it's, uh, it really speaks to kind of the quality of science. Um, and I think it, it really allows a broader you know, set of folks in the epilepsy community to kind of understand the potential of the science. And I think for us, we welcome kind of that examination of, of the work because it, it will ultimately contribute to how we think about work, the development of this product or these solutions. Um, and it's been well received and, and, and really ultimately people have begun to you know, initiate conversations with us because they're looking for solutions. It's driving people to um, figure out who's going to bring this solution forward. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited about the publication. It's uh, It was an important step for us as a company as well. Now, what are your options to get these bacteria into your microbiome, into your gut? Right. So there's a couple ways to answer the question. So we are... Um, so what we know right now is the ketogenic diet appears to increase these bacteria in your gut. So that's why we think we see people responding to the diet itself. Um, from our perspective, what we're really trying to do is to uh, develop products, both as a medical food as well as a drug, to introduce these live bacteria into the gut of a patient who's suffering from epilepsy. Um, so we'll do that through a medical food. And uh, what is a medical food? So, I'm, I, people have, I just started hearing right. this term. What's a medical food? So a and you don't mean a marijuana brown. No, right? I don't. I do not <laughs> mean California now is legalized. No. They got gummies. They have that. all kinds oh, of things. Yeah. I've no, been that, told. <laughs> that's, that's very true. So um, a medical food is very specific. It's for the dietary management of a disease. Um, it falls under the guidelines of the Orphan Drug Act. And it's really specific. So these are... The, these are um, foods that are used to complement a diet that is typically prescribed by a physician specifically for the management of a disease. In this case, there are products on the market that are, you know, fit the medical food kind of criteria that are used for intractable epilepsy. And so we think this is a very nice kind of, would fit very nice in that model for patients. It's part of how they're already managing their condition we think we might be able to help them a little bit more. Um, at the same time, we will be developing this as a very traditional drug because there are some specific patient populations that have no treatment options 
and we will follow the very traditional FDA approach to developing the drug, ensuring that it's safe and meets you know all the typical um, requirements to seek approval. But with all the drugs on the market, to have this large population of epileptics for whom there is no treatment. It's really interesting. There were it's just a handful of us now, but you definitely feel the mission of the company. I mean, we see this as a wonderful opportunity to help um, you know a large group of patients who have no options. And in, and in a strange way, we feel an incredible sense of responsibility, right? So when we struck the license with UCLA um, from a you know, from a development, from a company formation, that that all makes sense. That's part of what you need to do. Um, but taking that license on means we're also responsible for taking this forward, advancing the science and developing a solution for patients in a time frame that matters, right? So I think for us, we really are, are focused on the fastest path to get the solution out there uh, without sacrificing the scientific rigor or safety. But we see it as kind of our responsibility. It's a very different feel, um, you know, from... You uh, took it on. Yeah, yeah, we took it on. We're <laughs> very excited about it. Um, and we have some really great people who are getting behind us as well. So um, we have folks from the Epilepsy Foundation who are, um, you know, are part of our scientific advisory board. Uh, so I think they see the value as well as new treatments are needed um, that are safer. Uh, they don't have the side effects, and uh, we think this might be, might have that potential. Well, Tony, thanks so much. I hope you come back. Keep us updated. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Tony Cullison is a co-founder and CEO of Bloom Science. More information is available at bloomscience.com. If you would like to read the science behind this, the article authored by UCLA professor and Bloom Science co-founder Dr. Elaine Zhao can be found in the June 14, 2018 edition of the journal Cell. The title is, The Gut Microbiota Mediates the Anti-Seizure Effects of the Ketogenic Diet. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.